0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. As we begin to go through a lot of the passages now that directly address various and and sundry problems we've got to remember that this is all born out of a tremendous love and care for a church that Paul founded. So, just as we get started, I'm going to remind us of that by reading part of one of Paul's long sentences at the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 4, just to remember um, that particular point. He starts off... I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. We need to remember that, because in this letter, and in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to get after these people for some of their attitudes. He's already begun that process. He's talked about their spiritual immaturity as seen in all the jealousy and strife and quarreling and divisive loyalty to their particular favorite leader or teacher There has been a great degree of selfishness in a whole lot of people. There had to be to to cause these divisions in a church like this. And we need to ask, of course, how does this happen? When spiritually immature people begin cooperating only with those leaders and fellow believers with whom they happen to agree or who personally appeal to them, or who will flatter them, then troubling, divisive factions are built and literally start fighting for position and power. Everybody trying to win the fight. Everybody trying to insert their own kingdom over everyone else. You know what? Let's be real here. I'd be very surprised if there was even one adult in this place today who has not ever been in a situation like this. So, At somewhere, some point in your life, the sad fact is also true that way too many have found that to be true in a local church. The Apostle Paul addresses this issue by coming at it from all sorts of different angles and levels in this particular letter. Actually, he's already identified the problem in chapter 1 and made it clear that this behavior should never be tolerated. He's named some of the divisions already and shown how ridiculous it is to quarrel over which of their very gifted preachers and teachers and leaders should get the most acclaim. How would you like to be exposed to the teaching in person, visiting Amarillo starting this summer, of Paul, Apollos, or Peter? How could anyone be anything but grateful for such servants of the Lord? Paul has asked some penetrating questions. Is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? Or were you baptized in my name? Trying to get their attention. They all knew the answers to those questions, yet they still didn't see how off they were. How much they did not understand and how their thinking was so thoroughly selfish. So Paul then led them through a short course in the huge difference between how they were thinking, their wisdom, and how God thought, his wisdom. And this clearly showed them that their thinking was not at all lined up with God's word, but instead was actually just like their culture. They were impressed with worldly wisdom. And what's that? Remember, the best way to define that is the ability to understand the way the world works in order to accomplish what they desired and get what they desired. It has a selfish twist and purpose and this means they were impressed by those people who were very, very influential and powerful and of noble birth and rich. And we saw that in chapter 1, verse 20, and verses 26 through 28. Chapter 1 ended with the declaration that the whole point of God's wisdom and redemptive plan was to make sure. No human being could boast of themselves in the presence of God. Meaning that no one could say that they earned or merited salvation because of who they were or what they'd done. Instead, Paul wrote, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord to make much of him. Which, of course, they really couldn't do. Why? Because what they had come to think was impressive seemed to be more attractive than Jesus on a cross and Jesus being followed by unimpressive people, fishermen, etc. In chapter 2, Paul lays out how God's wisdom and plan focuses on Christ and His cross. And he then presents three contrasts showing what is true about God's wisdom, about His Spirit, and the spiritual person. And as he describes each side of each of these contrasts, he hopes these people will begin to see how far they have drifted into the worldly thinking that is so opposed to Christ and His cross. And I think most of us identify with that either to a great degree or a little degree or enough of a degree to become like, oh, I could easily slip there. And in the beginning of... Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, our passage we looked at last week, Paul addresses their wretched and unacceptable spiritual immaturity head on. He basically says there is no excuse for people who have been Christians for a while to still be acting like infants in Christ who only want and can accept spiritual milk, not solid food. I will not repeat the infantile, projectile, vomiting example. That's enough. But that's what we look like. And in our passage today, which is verses 5 through 9a, Paul begins to speak directly to the fundamental attitude necessary to live in peace with other believers in the body of Christ. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5, through the first part of verse 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, this is not complex theology. This is simple, and it goes right to the point. In verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. The Corinthians were unduly lifting up and being impressed by and glorifying in their identification with God's servants, not God himself, the one who saved them in Christ and sent these men to them. They wanted to follow the man whom they thought was the most influential and articulate, etc., And then, and probably most importantly, they wanted to grab some of the glory by riding on their choices' coattails, so to speak. In other words, Paul emphasizes that no matter how articulate or knowledgeable or gifted each of these men were, they were only servants through whom he says you believed. These men were not the source of their salvation. Only the instruments that God used to bring the message of salvation. The word servant meant a menial worker of any sort, free or slave, and it was often used of a table waiter. It's often translated as minister, diaconos. But I didn't say that first. Why? Because that's in case in your own mind you have a preconceived connotation attached to the word minister that implies only certain rank or status, etc. This is important. They were primarily servants, of Christ in or to the church. Why? Because as we see in this verse, the Lord assigned a particular task to each servant, to each servant that he chose to be this kind of servant. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered evangelism, equipping, or or cultivating. It still is so amazing to me, if you miss Sunday school, how these run parallel. It happens often. Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 1, actually. He says, This is how one should regard us. So in chapter 4, he finally says, look, this is how you should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. They do not gain their status by ambition or even by natural gifts, but by the specific assignment from the Lord. Paul was saying, in effect, no one builds a movement around a waiter or erects monuments to them. Apollos and I are waiters whom the Lord used as his servants to bring you food. Your honor, your glory is misplaced If it is placed on us, you are acting like the world, like mere men. Give your praise to the one who prepared the spiritual food that we delivered. Let me step back. Has anything changed since Paul wrote this? Our culture is enamored with anything and everything that's new, different, or in our day, weird. Anybody that is so articulate that you hang on every word can say something and people just, ah, and go right after it. And we go from one thing thing to another thing to another thing to another thing to another thing. That's what these people were doing. Corinth was a busy place. We've talked about the culture there. Have you ever thought about why the world honors and goes to such great lengths to immortalize certain great men and women? Why is there an award show every month for people that we don't even know? but the people that are in that industry have them regularly. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Why do the talk shows talk months before and months after every kind of event? And we're talking every kind of area. Well, it's simply because really great, influential people are the highest things that the world knows. It's that simple. Another way to say this is the world simply can't see beyond itself. The here and now is all there is. But that should not be so for the Christian. By God's grace, we know the God, the creator, sustainer, and source of all things, Savior and Lord of the universe. He alone is worthy of honor. His leaders are but His servants, His instruments, who serve His church. Do we honor and glorify an artist's brush and palette, or the artist? As Paul instructs in First Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, God's servants are to be esteemed and loved for their work, but not revered or set against each other like the Corinthians were doing. Paul now uses a, a farming example, an agricultural example, to illustrate how God works and why he should be praised. And that's in verses 6 and 9 through 9. Paul writes I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You, the Corinthians he's writing to, are God's field. Is that clear enough? It's God alone who orchestrates and brings together the independent task of planting and watering. It's God alone who makes things grow, and by this work, the harvest is finally brought in. Now, Paul does not want to deny the importance of individual faithfulness and labor. He's not denying that at all. But in terms of the great task at hand, making things grow and bringing them to harvest, it's important to get this picture straight. For we are God's fellow workers. does not mean that he and Apollos and the other called people are on the same level as God. Instead, he means that he and Apollos and any other workers are simply fellow workers, co-workers, owned by God and used by God. And he could add, gladly, thankfully, gratefully. The field represents the Corinthians. And notice, it belongs to God. The workers in the field are people like Paul and Apollos and Peter and they belong to God. God owns the field and the workers. He assigns the workers their task, and He alone makes the seed grow. Now, this farming analogy has two particular points, and Paul makes them clear but we've got to get them both, and we may not like one or both of them. The Corinthians have actually ignored both of them, and they've got to hear this and change accordingly, is why Paul's writing. First, Christian leaders are servants of Christ and are not to be given the allegiance that is reserved for God alone. Now, some of you may be laughing. We're in a small church. We don't have to worry about that. Whoever's up front is going to be gone pretty quick anyway. We, we make excuses like this, but it's still easy to fall in that kind of mistake. Who knows? Somebody else. Somebody online. Gratitude to God's workers is not inappropriate, and that Paul makes that clear in that first Thessalonians five passage. But what is inexcusable is the kind of fawning and defensive attachment to one particular leader that results in We could call it one-upmanship, quarreling, and jealousy. Why? Because that kind of allegiance is making too much of one person. In other words, no Christian leader is to be, a good word for that is venerated. Listened to, almost worshipped with the kind of allegiance and devotion that's properly reserved for God alone. And we've got to be careful about that. Christian leaders should also never present themselves, ever, as if they were modern day apostles with exclusive authority, gifts, insight, etc. That's always a danger. There's a second important point here. And because Paul is depending on On both of these points to make his point. And there's a distinction, did you notice that he made between the Corinthian believers and the Corinthian and the Christian workers, Paul and Apollos, which we noted. We see in the context here the Corinthians trying to align themselves with specific leaders. And specifically, the text says in verse 9, we, that is Paul and Apollos and in principle other workers, are God's fellow workers. Then you, the Corinthians, are God's field. You see that distinction? In other words, there are leaders who are called to lead and serve the members of the church And as we learned this morning, that is to equip the field to grow up and be used by God in the ministry to one another and to to spread the gospel. The distinction we have to reckon with. Do I need to say that we live in a day of autonomy when any kind of authority that's even hinted at is despised by most in our day. Why? Because you think your opinion is the only one that matters. And we even have misused the terms and turned truth into a word that doesn't mean anything. Your truth means more to you than this truth? That doesn't make any sense. And we have to deal with this, knowing in our interactions with people that God's plan is no more revered than any piece of dirt. We don't recognize, without being taught in our day, that God has actually called People to minister to us. Now there's a generational thing going on here, and that's also true. Autonomy can be the antithesis of freedom when it's looked at as I am my own God. We are responsible for our own actions, beliefs, behaviors, but we are not God. We answer to Him. We must look to Him, depend on Him. There's a whole lot being written in our day about the incivility amongst us as a people. The truth of the matter is that a lot of you folks that are really young don't know what that statement means because that's all you've known. Even with disagreements, there used to be a civility, a respect for other people that is the opposite of being autonomous. And so... As we learn what Paul is teaching these people about the church of Christ, their divisions and their jealousies and their fighting is very similar to what we see happening all around us in our own day. In other words, it should be a unique atmosphere in a body of Christ where people are submitting themselves to the same God and learning how to live with one another. And loving one another and serving him in that process. Yes, there's going to be hiccups and, and rough spots. And Paul even says later in this book that there's a reason for the divisions. They're necessary to some degree to show who the genuine Christians are. Because they won't be the ones that are locked in those situations. That goes back to the sovereignty idea. God does have a plan. And he's using every part of what we go through to work it out and bring glory to himself. Now, there's something else to just make clear here. In other contexts, of course, people can talk of all Christians as serving the Lord and being servants. We all are servants. But in this context, it's really essential to Paul's case to his argument before them to maintain this distinction which carries over in the next. What's the last phrase in verse 9? You are God's field. You are God's what? Building. Well, what's that illustration going to be? That's next week. There's builders, workers who build the building. That's the same idea in a different architectural context, and since this church has 90% engineers, you probably were waiting for next week. They're both the same idea. The architectural analogy goes through verse 15. So Paul has presented the thinking that the Corinthians have to adopt adopt to realign themselves with their God here. There won't be an end to the jealousy and infighting unless they see how they fit in this analogy. Their self-focus and selfishness can only be dealt with by a heart change that humbles itself before God in repentance and turns their eyes back to God Almighty and glorifying Him alone. And God has instituted for all of us who are hard-headed and hard-hearted, which is all of us, each of us, the Lord's Supper to be a picture of how dependent we must be upon Him and what He has done to answer our deepest need. So there's a a lot of pictures we've seen today just in this one passage. The Lord's Supper is not appointed primarily for the physical body. You'll be really disappointed if that's what you're looking forward to. One little cracker. One miniature cracker cup it's instituted instead for our souls scripture teaches that we receive spiritual truth nourishment when we focus on and believe in Christ and we need that nourishment that truth in order to think this way that Paul has presented he knows that that's why it's in his word. As we sing here, let the words of this hymn refresh and encourage your faith in the Lamb of God and how he did come, how he was the accepted atoning sacrifice for our sins and will come again as the King of Kings.